Welcome to this podcast titled Extubation Crises, where we're drawing on the content from the print edition of the June 2023 Clinical Communique. I'm Associate Professor Nicola Cunningham, the Editor-in-Chief of this series. In this podcast episode, we look at two cases of fatal upper airway swelling that occurred after routine extubation in the post-operative period. This episode is relevant to clinicians working in critical care or post-operative settings, but it's also important for all clinicians, particularly those who manage upper airway conditions, to understand the risks and potentially insidious nature of upper airway obstruction. Our case summary authors are Dr. Suzanne Doherty and Dr. Jack Darcy. And our expert in this podcast is Dr. Louise Ellard, who, as an anaesthetist, is a clinical and academic leader on difficult airway management. As you listen to the cases and the expert commentary, think about what you need to look for, what you might do in a similar scenario, and what could happen next once you remove a secured airway. Then, when you're next faced with that similar scenario, stop, check carefully, and ask yourself whether you, your team, and your patient are really ready at that point in time for extubation. Let's now listen to Ashley Redmond narrate the editorial. Contents. Editorial. Case 1. A fatal toothache. Case 2. Pulling teeth and tubes. A cautionary tale. Expert commentary. Extubation. An assessment of risk and strategy. Editorial. Associate Professor... Nicola Cunningham. Welcome to episode 12 of the Clinical Communique podcast, based on the June 2023 edition of the Clinical Communique. In this episode, we feature two cases of worsening upper airway swelling leading to fatal airway obstruction following routine extubation after surgery. We have looked at airway complications in previous editions of the Clinical Communique a case of esophageal intubation and another of tracheostomy failure in our June 2015 edition, and two cases where acute epiglottitis caused precipitous upper airway obstruction before the airway could be protected in our December 2019 edition. This time, we are focusing on the flip side of the coin, where intubation was achieved safely and the airway crisis instead occurred following extubation. The patient's original conditions had been surgically managed and each patient had a patent and secure airway. Then, a series of decisions and actions led to the loss of airway protection, a failure to recognise the severity of the situation and an inability to salvage the situation. An airway obstruction is a time-critical, life-threatening condition. It is a clinical presentation or a rapidly evolving complication that evokes anxiety in even the most experienced airway proceduralists. Death occurs in a matter of minutes, and successful rescue relies on everything going right. Immediate recognition of the impending obstruction, good team communication and decision-making, strong leadership, appropriate equipment, and competent procedural skills. As such, there are so many ways in which things can go terribly wrong. Although airway crises are more commonly managed by anaesthetists, there are scenarios that all medical, surgical, emergency, general practice and other frontline clinicians must know how to manage. 
anaesthetists, ear, nose and throat surgeons, oral maxillofacial surgeons, intensivists, emergency physicians and generalists in rural and regional settings will invariably be involved in the decision to intubate and or extubate a patient or perform airway procedures in the course of their day-to-day work. Therefore, it is imperative that clinicians develop a deep appreciation of the risks of airway obstruction in their patients and maintain constant vigilance for signs and symptoms that might indicate a change in condition. In this podcast, Dr. Suzanne Doherty returns as our first case summary author, eloquently describing a complex and protracted series of events. Dr. Jack Darcy joins our team of case summary authors and presents the second case. Dr. Darcy is a dual-trained intensive care and emergency physician who offers valuable reflections on the learnings from the case. We are very fortunate to have Dr. Louise Allard contribute the expert commentary to this podcast episode. Dr. Allard is an anaesthetist and the president of the Safe Airway Society a not-for-profit organisation that represents the Interprofessional Airway Society for Australia and New Zealand. She is a clinical and academic leader on difficult airway management. Dr Allard's commentary is a must-hear synopsis on when and how to perform a safe extubation. Despite many advances in airway management, extubation-related incidents have not reduced over time. As Dr. Allard highlights in her commentary, extubation is always elective, so clinicians must be cognizant of the fact that the decision to extubate is an intentional and avoidable transition of a patient's state from a secure airway to a potentially at-risk one. By ensuring they are fully informed of a patient's condition and have considered all the contextual and precipitating factors, clinicians can more ably predict, plan for, and avert an extubation crisis. Let's now listen to the case from Queensland. Case 1. A fatal toothache. Case Pracy author. Dr Suzanne Doherty, emergency physician. Clinical summary. Mr KS was a previously well 31-year-old man who attended the dentist complaining of a toothache and facial swelling. He was advised he had a dental abscess and would need extraction of several teeth, which the dentist could perform immediately under local anaesthetic. At Mr K.S. request, however, the procedure was deferred to an appointment three days later to have this done under general anaesthetic with an anaesthetist. He was given oral antibiotics to take in the meantime, but his symptoms worsened. He told his wife he was not sleeping well and he had difficulty breathing. On the day of the procedure, Mr KS had facial swelling, a lot of pain, and his voice sounded different. The anaesthetist inserted an endotracheal tube, otherwise known as a breathing tube, through Mr KS' nasal passage to facilitate the procedure. He observed trismus, which is reduced jaw opening due to muscle spasm, and swelling of the floor of the mouth, as well as some displacement of the vocal cords. The teeth were successfully extracted but, surprisingly, little pus was released. The anaesthetist was concerned about the potentially life-threatening nature of the swelling, so made urgent arrangements to transfer Mr KS to a private hospital for further treatment. Prior to Mr KS being transferred, the anaesthetist removed the endotracheal tube 
and gave Mr. KS intravenous antibiotics and a steroid medication. That evening at the private hospital, Mr. KS was assessed by an oral maxillofacial surgeon, Dr. C, who was taking over his care. He was found to have severe facial cellulitis with swelling on the side of his face that extended to just below the border of the jaw. There was no evidence of respiratory distress. Mr. KS was charted intravenous antibiotics and admitted to the intensive care unit for observation overnight so that his airway could be monitored given the risk of airway obstruction. The following morning, a CT scan was performed which identified swelling that was tracking down into the pharyngeal space and required surgical drainage. Due to theatre staffing constraints, surgery did not commence until 1,700 hours that day. While he waited, Mr. KS had normal vital sign observations and there were no concerns about his airway being eminently compromised. Mr. KS was assessed preoperatively by an anaesthetist, Dr. L., who noted swelling from below the eye to the base of the neck, with deviation of his larynx. Dr. L anticipated that it would be difficult to insert an endotracheal tube due to the degree of swelling. So to intubate Mr. KS, he used an awake fibre optic technique through the nasal passage. 200 millilitres of pus was drained during the operation and the drains were left in place post-operatively. The endotracheal tube was also left in place with instructions for it to be kept in overnight and reviewed in the morning. At 0600 hours the following morning, an intensive care consultant examined Mr. KS and found that he had significantly improved. A decision was made to remove the tube. Dr. C reviewed Mr. KS later that morning and was surprised to find that the tube had been removed. He was usually consulted prior to the removal of any endotracheal tubes in his patients. The anaesthetist expressed similar surprise as he believed Mr. KS would require intubation for several days. On assessment, Dr. C found that Mr. KS was alert, orientated, and tolerating crushed ice and water, so he did not object to the plan of transferring Mr. KS to the ward. Mr. KS was discharged to the ward later that afternoon. His wife spent the evening with him and observed him using the suction device to clear his mouth as he could not swallow. The following morning, his voice was distorted, his tongue and face were both still swollen, and he was coughing and had ongoing difficulty swallowing. During the day, nurses on the ward recorded four hourly observations, but were more frequently looking in on him and changing his dressings. Mr. KS was complaining of thick sputum and difficulty expectorating. There were no concerns raised about him having difficulty breathing. Later that afternoon, at approximately 1,500 hours, Mr. K.S. parents were visiting when he became distressed and had difficulty breathing. Help was sought from an unidentified male who was sitting outside his room at the time. Mr. K.S. was instructed to breathe in and out of a paper bag and was told he was hyperventilating. This incident was not documented and no further review was organised. At approximately 15.30 hours... The intensive care fellow was asked to review Mr. KS as he had become acutely short of breath, was sweaty and distressed, and his oxygen saturation levels had dropped. The intensive care fellow attended and found Mr. KS using a saline nebulizer with oxygen. He was no longer distressed, and his oxygen levels 
had returned to 100% on room air. The intensive care fellow did not observe any signs of upper respiratory tract obstruction. The problem was thought to have been temporary mucus plugging in the lower respiratory tract and a chest x-ray was organised, with advice given for ongoing saline nebulizers and four-hourly chest physiotherapy. Dr C arrived at 1600 hours and saw Mr KS oxygen saturation levels were normal and the rest of his observations were within normal parameters. Mr KS was able to open his mouth quite wide and the drains were still functioning. Despite this, he looked distressed, frightened, and stated he could not breathe. Dr C requested a crash trolley as he was worried Mr KS airway was obstructing due to swelling lower down in the pharynx. Dr. C left the bedside to organise an emergent procedure in the ICU or theatre to insert a breathing tube into the neck. It was at this time that Mr. K.S. stopped breathing and became unconscious. A code blue was called and staff attended promptly. There were multiple attempts to insert an airway, both via the mouth and through the neck. However, the swelling had distorted the anatomy of the neck. Mr. K.S. went into cardiac arrest and died shortly after. Pathology. An autopsy was performed at the request of Mr. K.S.'s wife. The cause of death was found to be airway obstruction due to a pharyngeal abscess caused by a dental infection. Investigation. A coronial inquest was performed to establish the facts surrounding the death of Mr. K.S. There were multiple questions raised, such as... Was the timing of removal of the breathing tube appropriate? Was Mr. K.S. sufficiently monitored on the ward? Was the assessment, diagnosis and treatment of Mr. K.S. acute deterioration by the intensive care fellow appropriate? Did Mr. K.S. receive overall proper care? The coroner considered evidence from the medical records, statements submitted to the inquest and evidence given at the inquest by multiple members of the healthcare team that were involved. Opinions were provided by two independent expert witnesses, an intensivist anaesthetist and a pathologist microbiologist. There were differing opinions offered by the treating team and the experts about the timing of extubation. The coroner heard that the intensive care consultant and surgeon were not made aware of two key factors on the morning that Mr KS was discharged to the ward. The first was that his temperature increased to over 38 degrees Celsius by 0700 hours, which was around the time that the tube was removed, and the second was that he was having difficulty swallowing. The anaesthetist gave evidence that the decision to extubate was a pivotal moment in Mr. K.S. management, and clinical assessment was the critical method to assess readiness to extubate. The hospital undertook a review process in response to Mr. K.S.'s death. The review focused on standards for documentation, communication and clinical handover and introduced new documentation for post-operative patients and patients being discharged from ICU to the ward to highlight specific concerns about the patient. This was in the form of a bold red box headed Special Risk or Issues About This Patient. A regular audit process was also implemented to assess staff compliance with the standards. Coroner's Findings The coroner acknowledged the varying opinions about the extubation 
and found that the timing of the removal of the endotracheal tube was appropriate, given the clinical improvement noted by the intensive care consultant. Regarding the lack of consultation with the surgeon, the coroner stated, No doubt it is a matter of professional courtesy that the surgeon and anaesthetist are informed of the extubation, but it is a matter of individual practice how this occurs. Regarding the monitoring of Mr KS on the ward, the coroner noted that the incident at 1500 hours, which was attended by the unidentified male, presumed to be a nurse, as opposed to a random stranger, was not managed correctly. It should have triggered a medical review and been documented. The failure to do so was critical and contributed to an overall false sense of security that Mr KS was out of risk. The coroner also commented on Mr KS performing his own mouth hygiene and suctioning, and how this possibly contributed to the lack of recognition of the severity of his condition. When Mr KS' oxygen levels dropped, he was reviewed by the intensive care fellow who thought his symptoms were due to a mucus plug causing temporary blockage in the lower respiratory tract. The coroner found that this diagnosis and management was incorrect. The error was critical but explicable in the context of improvement after expectorating the mucus plug. The coroner noted that the risk to Mr KS life was appropriately identified by his initial treating dentist and anaesthetist. The risk was also recognised by his treating surgeon and he underwent the correct operation and was commenced on the appropriate antibiotics. Although unexpectedly early, it was appropriate to remove his breathing tube on the balance of the findings at the time. However, there were two key pieces of information that were not relayed to the treating specialist that morning. Mr KS temperature was increasing and he was having difficulty swallowing. After discharge to the ward, there was still a risk to Mr KS airway from ongoing swelling or recollection of pus. Although his deterioration in the end was sudden, there were two preceding moments that were missed opportunities to instigate airway protection and save his life. The coroner felt that the hospital response had addressed the major issue identified, being failure to recognise the potential for life-threatening airway obstruction due to limited documentation in hospital records from the operating theatre, the intensive care unit, and upon transfer to the ward. Author's comments. This case is a frightening reminder of how difficult it can be to diagnose impending airway obstruction and how unpredictable disease processes can be. Patients can have reassuring clinical signs, such as reasonable oxygen saturation levels and the ability to open their mouth immediately prior to obstructing their airway. In the setting of dynamic airway pathology, a thorough clinical assessment is important and symptoms such as dyspnea or agitation should be presumed to be signs of an impending airway obstruction. When treating dental infections, it is imperative to recognise the real risk of airway obstruction, which can happen suddenly and unexpectedly. Therefore, any hint or suggestion of airway or breathing difficulty should be carefully explored. This case was unusual in that the obstruction did not occur until 36 hours after Mr KS had been extubated. This serves us a reminder that disease processes and complications do not always follow predictable timelines, and decisions regarding patient care and management should be made with the full clinical context in mind, rather than merely a snapshot clinical assessment. 
Let's now listen to the case from South Australia. Case 2. Pulling Teeth and Tubes. A Cautionary Tale. Case Precy Author. Dr. Jack Darcy. Intensive Care Physician. Clinical Summary. Mr. D.S. was a 27-year-old man with a history of mild asthma. He did not take any regular medications. Over the course of six weeks, Mr. D.S. presented three times to a Metropolitan Emergency Department for symptomatic management of a toothache that had developed in a lower molar tooth. His tooth was documented as being rotten and shattered, but without signs of infection. He was provided with pain relief and advised to follow up at a dental clinic for further care. Ten weeks later, Mr. D.S. presented to an emergency department after undergoing extraction of a right lower molar tooth in a private dental practice just one day prior. An emergency department medical officer on night duty reviewed him and noted swelling to the lower jaw, inability to open his mouth, and tooth pain. The emergency department medical officer diagnosed Mr. D.S. with Ludwig's angina, a life-threatening infection involving the soft tissues of the floor of the mouth and neck. He noted Mr. D.S. was not febrile, was clinically stable, and did not have any strider or evidence of immediate airway compromise. Mr. D.S. was referred to and accepted by the oral maxillofacial registrar on call at a larger nearby public teaching hospital. He was unable to be transferred to this hospital overnight by ambulance, so instead he was kept in the emergency department overnight, commenced on intravenous antibiotics and fasted. The following morning, Mr. D.S.'s mother was asked by the emergency department staff to take Mr. D.S. by car to the teaching hospital. He was reviewed by an emergency medicine consultant who concurred with the diagnosis of Ludwig's angina and observed there to be no signs of airway obstruction present. Mr. D.S. had now been in the emergency department for almost 11 hours. When Mr. D.S.'s mother arrived at the emergency department to take him to the teaching hospital, the swelling had worsened and involved the full length of his neck, and by the time they arrived at the hospital, he was dribbling and needing a box of tissues to absorb his saliva. At the teaching hospital, Mr. D.S. was examined by a senior anaesthetic registrar who noted that he was able to speak but had limited mouth opening. The anaesthetic registrar was under the impression that the intended surgical operation was a tooth extraction, unaware that this had been carried out already two days earlier. Mr. D.S. proceeded to theatre that afternoon under the care of the anaesthetic registrar and an oral maxillofacial registrar. The anaesthetic registrar performed nasal fibroptic intubation without any difficulty. Mr. D.S. underwent an exploration of his neck and drainage of a submandibular and sublingual abscess with insertion of drains into his neck. He was extubated at the end of the case and taken to the recovery area, where he had 15-minutely observation checks performed over an estimated period of one hour or so. During this time, he was administered 32 milligrams of morphine for post-operative pain in alignment with their protocol. Mr. D.S. was reviewed in the recovery area by the senior anaesthetic registrar at 17.30 hours. He was sitting upright and was observed to have tongue swelling but no stridor or voice alteration. 
The anaesthetic registrar asked the anaesthetic consultant in charge of recovery to examine Mr. DS with a view to discharging him to the ward. The consultant briefly reviewed him and signed him out of recovery to the general ward. Mr. DS was admitted to an eight-beds bay shortly after 1800 hours and was cared for by an enrolled nurse and a registered nurse. One-hourly observations were undertaken up to 20 hundred hours and he was reviewed by the oral maxillofacial registrar sometime that evening as well. Mr. DS was documented by the nursing staff to be alert and orientated, but he was not conversive, only providing yes and no answers. At some point after 20 hundred hours, Mr. DS was found standing at the nursing station, looking distressed and indicating he had trouble breathing. The nurses accompanied him back to his bed where he suffered a cardiorespiratory arrest. Immediate cardiopulmonary resuscitation was commenced by the nursing staff, assisted by two doctors who were on the ward at the time. A cardiac arrest call was made at 20.55 hours. When the medical emergency team arrived, Mr. DS was cyanotic with fixed dilated pupils and gross facial and submandibular swelling. He had airway obstruction, was unable to be ventilated, and there was no view of his vocal cords on laryngoscopy. A cricothyrotomy was performed to secure an airway. Despite 20 minutes of resuscitation, he was pronounced deceased at 21.15 hours, just hours after his operation. Pathology. An autopsy was performed, and the cause of death was airway obstruction due to sublingual and submandibular cellulitis, described as Ludwig's angina, following right lower molar tooth extraction. Investigation. A coronial inquest was held to examine several aspects of the care provided to Mr. DS. The coroner examined the timeliness and mode of inter-hospital transportation. The accepting oral maxillofacial registrar was informed that the ambulance service would not prioritise Mr. DS transfer overnight. He subsequently agreed to an early morning transfer for Mr. DS. The emergency department medical officer stated that the ambulance service wait time was notoriously long for non-urgent patients. The emergency department consultant in the referring hospital who reviewed Mr. DS in the morning agreed to private transport because he did not believe Mr. DS was in imminent danger of airway obstruction. An expert witness in the field of oral maxillofacial surgery stated that the overnight stay in the emergency department delayed definitive treatment and during this time, Mr. DS' condition would have become a little more severe. The lack of consultant presence immediately before and during the operation was also considered by the coroner. It was the opinion of the expert witness that normally a consultant surgeon would review a case such as Mr. DS preoperatively. This point of view was rejected by the consultant surgeon who was on call at the time of the operation, who stated he was likely to have been notified of the case in advance and had faith in many of his staff. A key element of the coronial investigation centred around the conflicting views regarding whether Mr. DS was suffering from Ludwig's angina. The diagnosis was made by the emergency department medical officer in the referring hospital and supported by the emergency department consultant who reviewed Mr. DS prior to transport. The on-call surgical consultant stated that Mr. DS' condition was not his understanding of Ludwig's angina. 
which he understood to be bilateral swelling of the sublingual area. The director of oral maxillofacial surgery at the hospital, where Mr. DS was operated on, supported his opinion. He stated that the surgical registrar who operated on Mr. DS discussed the case with him post-operatively. He understood that Mr. DS had a submandibular abscess requiring drainage and that the operation proceeded satisfactorily. He stated that a submandibular abscess was fundamentally different from Ludwig's angina. The coroner noted that neither consultant surgeon reviewed Mr. DS in person at any point. In stark contrast to these viewpoints, the forensic pathologist who conducted the post-mortem noted that the edema and inflammation was diffuse, covering that area right around the upper neck and underneath the lower jaw. He stated that the macroscopic, microscopic and bacteriological findings together with the history of extraction of an infected molar tooth were all consistent with Ludwig's angina. The senior anaesthetic registrar who assessed Mr. DS preoperatively noted he had limited mouth opening and swelling consistent with a dental infection, but no drooling or strider, and considered the case to be a routine dental matter, stating, We see these patients very regularly. His misunderstanding of the operation being performed continued up until inquest. He stated that if he was aware of the diagnosis of Ludwig's angina, he would have sought more senior assistance and likely would have left the tube in place. He confirmed the decision to extubate was his own decision and no discussion took place with the surgical registrar regarding extubation suitability. He stated that at the end of the case, Mr. D.S. swelling had reduced and his mouth opening had improved. On assessment of Mr. D.S. airway with a laryngoscope, he could view the epiglottis and the posterior part of the vocal cords. He acknowledged that Mr. D.S. had an increased chance of requiring re-intubation, but was confident he could intubate him if required. The expert witness commented that although the ultimate responsibility of extubation lies with the anaesthetist, it is a decision made after discussion with the surgeon to see whether there is an agreement between the two. He stated that in the case of Ludwig's angina, his approach would be to keep the patient intubated or perform an elective tracheostomy, and if doubts exist about the patient's ability to maintain their airway after the operation, then they go to the intensive care unit. The expert witness also suggested that Mr. D.S. post-operative airway obstruction was likely to have been caused by a progressive swelling of his airway from the original infection or post-operative edema, but probably the former. The coroner noted that the teaching hospital in which Mr. D.S. died subsequently implemented a protocol for the management of cases like Mr. D.S. that resulted in less patients being extubated immediately post-operatively. Coroner's Findings The coroner found that Mr. D.S. had suffered from Ludwig's angina given the presence of bilateral involvement of more than one anatomic space in the floor of the mouth that was confirmed at post-mortem. He stated that the forensic pathologist's opinion was more reliable than that opinion of the consultant surgeon who never saw the patient. He found that Mr. D.S. transfer between hospitals for definitive treatment was not affected in a sufficiently timely manner, leading to a deterioration in his condition. He concluded 
that a lack of patient documentation accompanying his private transportation meant that the surgical and anaesthetic registrars involved in Mr. Dios' operation were unaware of the diagnosis of Ludwig's angina made by other medical practitioners. The coroner remarked that had a diagnosis of Ludwig's angina clearly been made at the teaching hospital before Mr. Diaz's operation, then a consultant would have probably been involved in the operation and may have left Mr. Diaz intubated following his operation. The coroner also stated that a lack of discussion pre-operatively between the surgical and anaesthetic registrars regarding the nature of the operation to be embarked upon represented a clear deficiency in the management of Mr. D.S. It was the opinion of the coroner that Mr. D.S. was extubated too early, postoperatively, and suffered a known complication of Ludwig's angina, namely, postoperative airway obstruction, which ultimately cost him his life. The coroner's recommendations include a review of the referring hospital's transport guidelines to ensure that appropriate documentation always accompanies the patient, irrespective of mode transportation. A recommendation was also made to the Minister for Health to remind the public of the dangers of ignoring signs of dental infection over a prolonged period. Author's comments. The preventable death of this young man is a sobering story to hear. There were two striking themes that recurred throughout this coronial investigation. The first was the casual manner to which Mr. D.S. life-threatening illness was referred to and managed by successive healthcare providers. Phrases such as non-urgent, clinically stable and routine dental matter were commonplace at the inquest. The inability of the clinical staff to recognise and act upon the early signs and symptoms of a threatened airway at high risk of obstruction warrants reflection. There was a clear over-reliance on normal observations and absence of stridor to reassure clinical staff both before and after Mr. D.S. operation. The presence of voice alteration, throat pain and swallowing difficulties are markers of progressive laryngeal edema and impending airway collapse. These early signs represent an opportunity to intervene in a controlled manner. Strider and oxygen desaturation represent a late and perilous point at which to attempt rescue. Compounding this issue was the lack of awareness that such risks are likely to continue or worsen in the immediate post-operative period. A second notable theme arising from the inquest was the inability of the health system to safety net any individual shortcomings in judgment and critical thinking. A system that would trigger mandatory consultant review for a case such as Mr. D.S. may have afforded the opportunity to expedite safe transportation, reappraise his diagnosis, and to appropriately risk stratify preoperatively. As the coroner alluded to, consultant presence perioperatively may have facilitated a collaborative discussion regarding safe postoperative airway management. System safety breaches existed with inter-hospital communication, interprofessional communication and clinical handover, meaning individuals were effectively working in silos in a case that demanded a high degree of teamwork. Contemporary critical care medicine 
has increasingly recognised the need for clear and effective team communication in the management of the critically ill. Surgical timeouts prior to embarking upon an operation ensure all team members have a shared mental model of the issues at hand and can voice safety concerns. In a similar manner, clinical handover has been a priority for many healthcare systems in recent years. Ensuring health systems comply with these standards and recommendations is key to reducing the likelihood of Mr. D's tragic case being replicated in the future. Let's now listen to the expert commentary by Dr. Louise Ellard. Expert commentary. Extubation. An assessment of risk and strategy. Dr. Louise Allard, Honorary Clinical Senior Fellow of the Department of Critical Care at the University of Melbourne, Deputy Director of Anesthesia in the Department of Anesthesia at Austin Health, and President of the Safe Airway Society. The decision to remove airway support is ultimately based on two important considerations. The patient is unlikely to require reintubation. And, if it is required, re-intubation is not anticipated to be problematic. These two considerations need to be repeatedly asked in a dynamic fashion each time extubation is considered. When compared with intubation-related incidents, the number of severity of extubation-related incidents has not reduced over time. The fourth National Audit Project of the Royal College of Anaesthetists and the Difficult Airway Society, also known as the NAP4 study, was the largest study of major complications of airway management ever performed. Cases were captured across a 12-month period from all National Health Service hospitals in the United Kingdom, and the study examined the most severe cases of airway complications, leading to death, brain damage, emergency surgical airway, and admission to an intensive care unit. The NAP4 study showed that approximately one-third of severe outcomes were related to extubation, and these events were more likely to result in death or significant injury. Extubation is always elective. Therefore, if the passage of time will lead to a reduction in the risk that extubation will fail, or a reduction in the risk that re-intubation will fail, if that becomes necessary, extubation should be deferred. Some factors that can improve over time include patient factors, such as respiratory insufficiency, neuromuscular weakness, conscious state, hemodynamic compromise, and airway factors such as swelling, edema, and bleeding, and situational factors such as staff number and skill set, environment, equipment, and the time of day. In the ICU setting, despite a persistent high likelihood of requiring reintubation, a trial of extubation may be considered. This is rarely done unless straightforward reintubation is anticipated. If difficulty is anticipated, an at-risk extubation strategy should be strongly considered. Assessment of risk. When assessing the level of risk to determine how extubation should proceed, the clinician should consider three questions. 
with each affirmative answer, giving a greater cumulative risk. 1. Was the initial intubation problematic? This is important as any issues encountered with the initial intubation are likely to remain for a re-intubation. 2. Since the initial intubation, have any factors changed or developed that could compromise the ability to re-intubate? Here, an initial straightforward intubation is not reassuring, as deterioration due to edema, bleeding, or the application of hardware, i.e. a halo brace, or intermaxillary fixation device, all increase re-intubation difficulty. 3. Does the patient have an increased likelihood of requiring re-intubation? Re-intubation could be for airway reasons, progressing airway swelling or neck hematoma, or non-airway reasons, severe pulmonary disease, or a neuromuscular disorder. It is important to remember that the risk of re-intubation can persist for some time, especially with infective pathology. Management of an at-risk extubation. Once it is appropriate to consider extubation, and deferring extubation is no longer a necessary strategy, there are three ways to manage an at-risk extubation. 1. Awake extubation and close observation. 2. Use of an airway exchange catheter. 3. Tracheostomy. Whilst an awake extubation may reduce the risk of aspiration or reintubation due to reduced cognition, respiratory, or neuromuscular failure, it does not reduce the risk of reintubation from airway compromise, nor does it improve reintubation success. Observing patients with an ongoing risk of reintubation in an intensive care unit has several advantages. Deterioration is detected early. Access to resources for reintubation is optimized, that is, both staff and equipment resources, and a pre-formulated strategy for reintubation can be created. However, even the most experienced airway specialist with optimal equipment may not be able to reintubate a patient with upper airway obstruction. Use of an airway exchange catheter can improve reintubation success, especially in difficult airways. These specialised devices are also uncommonly used and not without risk. The airway exchange catheter is placed through the tracheal tube and remains in situ after the tracheal tube is removed. Patient tolerance of airway exchange catheters is remarkably good. Spontaneous breathing occurs around the device and most patients can talk and cough with one in situ. If reintubation is required, a tracheal tube is advanced over the catheter, assisted by gentle laryngoscopy, if required. It is important that the catheter is left in situ until the chance of reintubation is very low, which could be hours or even days. During this time, the patient should be in an intensive care unit or high dependency unit or under the direct supervision of the anaesthetist in the operating room or the recovery room. The use of an airway exchange catheter is not without risk, with lung lacerations, barotrauma, pneumomediastinum, gastric perforation, and deaths, all reported in association with their use. These complications predominantly relate to oxygen delivery via the catheter, which should be avoided. The airway exchange catheter must be clearly marked and properly secured to avoid premature dislodgement. There will be patients whose Cumulative risk is so high that a tracheostomy is the best extubation strategy 
to ensure maintenance of a potentially compromised airway. Extubation literature Whilst extubation guidelines have lagged behind that of intubation, a document by the Difficult Airway Society provides a comprehensive guide to tracheal extubation in adult perioperative practice. Despite the comprehensive nature of this document, a gap remains, that is, the merging of risk factors and potential strategies in order to help clinicians decide which extubation strategy to use for patients at risk. When the PUMA, that is, the Project for Universal Management of the Airway, strategy document is published later in 2023, an extubation decision-making tool will be presented, merging risk assessment and management options at the time of extubation. The importance of close monitoring of patients in the post-extubation period, regardless of the chosen strategy, cannot be underestimated. Monitoring may need to be extended in patients with an ongoing risk of reintubation, especially when reintubation is anticipated to be difficult. Deferring extubation is ideal if the passage of time will lead to a reduction in risk. The use of an airway exchange catheter or a tracheostomy are alternative strategies for patients with a high cumulative risk at the time of extubation. Thanks for tuning into this podcast episode. Remember the online print versions are available at our website at www.thecommunicase.com, which also include hyperlinks and a list of resources and any references that our case summary authors or our experts have recommended. I'm Nicola Cunningham. Thanks for listening.